Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell, and this is our sixth episode bringing you the very best of the weekly webinar led by Professor Rick Boddy with the help of Archem Learning, the University of Manchester, and in collaboration with us here at St. Emlyn's. Over the next 50 minutes or so, they'll take you through four amazing papers about COVID-19, and you'll also learn just how a baby's nappy might help us diagnose the disease and why it's so important to put the lid down on your loo. On the panel today are the usual suspects, Professor Paul Clapper and Professor Pam Vallely, both professors of virology, joined by Charlie Reynard and Anissa Jafar, researchers in emergency medicine. Ellie Hothershall makes an appearance. You'll remember her from last week. She's the head of undergraduate medicine at the University of Dundee and an expert in public health. And of course, our very own editor-in-chief, Simon Carley. We hope you've been enjoying these podcasts from us at St Emlyn's. There's loads more information about COVID-19 and other topics available on the blog site. It's all there for you. Just go to stemlinsblog.org and you can find everything you need. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe. And here we go. I'll hand over to Rick. This is how it's going to work. We're going to have one paper that we're going to look at in a little bit more detail. This week, it's a very high profile paper from a, a group or a study called Open Safely. We have linked data from 17 million adult patients. Uh, and then we've got three papers this week on the rapid review with a particular theme of grief, loss and communication. That's going to be the climax of the session. All the papers are posted at stemlinsblog.org. Let's move on to our deep dive. And this week, Charlie Reynard is going to take us through a really interesting paper. So this is a paper from Goldacres Group, First Officer is Williamson. It's from a collaborative called Open Safely. It is a really important paper that has some really interesting findings. Because it's so important, I'm going to be relatively critical of it, but I think the core message is sound in it. It's a prognostic factor paper. What they're trying to do is identify likely prognostic factors linked with COVID-19. Their primary objective uh, was to look for prognostic factors linked to death. They did this through a retrospective database review. They used a pre-existing primary care record uh, database, which is around a Phoenix partnership called System One. They then cross-linked that with nationally held data records for inpatient mortality and also for death registry. They say that System 1 covers 40% of the population in the UK. They have access to more than 50 million records, but only 24 million were quoted in this paper. The ones that were eligible were 17.4 million. And of that, there were 5,683 identified COVID deaths. Looking at the population, is it representative of what we have in the UK? It looks like it was in terms of basic demographics. They found uh, in terms of ethnicity, which will become important later, they found that they, in their sample they had 11% non-white ethnicities. That was compared to 14% non-white in the 2011 census, so it's in the ballpark range. Importantly, they had a lot of missing data which isn't surprising when you're doing such a large retrospective database review. For BMI, they found that they had uh, missing data for 22% of patients. For smoking status, they had missing data at 4%. Ethnicity, 26% missing data. Um, And blood pressure, 10%. Uh, In terms of potential risk factors, in the literature, there's been lots of things swirling around about what might be a risk factor. So they looked at those ones. That includes age, sex, ethnicity, comorbidities, deprivation scoring, and they looked at all of those in a model. They used a multivariable Cox proportional hazard model to try and adjust for each factors to see if, for instance, BMI, despite smoking status, had an impact on mortality. Did BMI increase your risk of dying from COVID-19? Importantly, When you're looking at a risk factor, you have to use one of them as a reference standard. So one of them is always going to be zero. For instance, looking at gender, female versus male, they called female the reference standard. And therefore, it's what is the male hazard ratio as compared to that reference standard. And that's important when thinking about the other things. Looking at the hazard ratios, you can see that increasing age increases your hazard ratio for the outcome of death. Being male increases your hazard ratio from dying from COVID-19. So does increasing obesity. The ethnicity hazard ratios quoted here, quoted here, interestingly, are actually from a different 
multivariate model. Because they had so much missing data, more than a quarter for ethnicity, they decided they actually couldn't include it in their primary analysis. So instead, they built a completely separate model to look at ethnicity, which is in contrast to how they handled some of the other missing data with BMI and with smoking status. If it wasn't available, they assumed that they weren't smokers or they weren't obese, which isn't ideal having a slightly mixed approach for different factors, but is pragmatic. There are other important limitations. This study relies on death certificates and which aren't always the most accurate. And retrospective database reviews are renowned for having missing data and a degree of recall bias. They quote various stats on the amount of missing data in the study overall, but actually we don't know in the patients who had the primary outcome how much missing data was there. And that is quite important because if all the missing data is in all the patients who unfortunately died from COVID-19, then we're going to have a really large blind spot and the model actually will be quite poorly informed. The other problem and limitation of this study is that it only includes system one. It's a non-randomized sample of the population. It only includes patients registered on system one. And of that, there seems to be only a select proportion of those patients registered on system one in the study. And why we got down to that smaller sample size isn't clear. There may well be a really good reason, but we don't know what that is. In conclusion, it's not a perfect study. What's important to note is they only got approval from a research ethics committee in early April. So this was put together at scale and pace. And that scale and pace is really impressive. Uh, Putting this study together in a non-pandemic situation would take years. So actually doing this in just over a month is a really impressive piece of work. It's got some limitations and that's mainly for me around the missing data. But that being said, because of the scale of it, my impression is that the findings are robust and that these factors, which have been identified as giving an increased risk of death from COVID-19, probably is the real situation. The magnitude of that effect might not be perfect, but the effect is probably real. Fascinating paper. And what seems to be different about this paper to some of the papers we looked at in previous weeks, for example, I think in week one, we looked at the paper by Guan in New England Journal of Medicine, which also looked at factors that might predict worse outcome. But in that paper, we had hospitalised patients with COVID and then we're looking at the outcome and finding out which factor predicted it. Here, you've actually got the whole general population as your denominator. And within that, you're finding the predictors of COVID-related death. So it's not just the chance of dying if you catch COVID, it's the chances of catching COVID and dying. Which I think is a more robust methodology. Yeah, in, in a way, you need both really. But importantly, the analyses of both cohorts, you know, the hospitalised patients with COVID looking at the outcome and this population-based study, uh, they're, they're both telling us the same kind of predictors. If you're older, if you're male, if you're from an ethnic minority group, you know, you're more likely to die of COVID. And importantly, uh, if you're uh, an ex-smoker, you don't do particularly well. Uh, but if you're a smoker, it's actually protective, so don't give up smoking during the pandemic. So in their adjusted analysis of that, they thought that some of um, that unusual protective effect might be related to an overlay of chronic lung disease. So what we might be seeing there is a confounding factor that the ex-smokers have a higher rate of chronic lung disease, and that might be why they stopped, but that is for chronic lung disease, which might infer more of the risk. And just a, a simple observation that even in a study like this of 17 million people, because the event rate is quite small still, the confidence intervals are actually still pretty wide, despite having such a large number of people in there. And of course, what they have said is that they will be taking this study forward. And as more people come into it and we get more events and more deaths, we may get more precision and more accurate results. So this is going to be an iterative process through this study methodology, which I think is also pretty, pretty cool, actually. Yeah, so even with 17 million people, you still get wide confidence intervals and, and what, 35,000 deaths in the country. And that's all of them, of course, captured here. In terms of geographical effect, they did look at a, a deprivation index with the IMD, which is a national index for general deprivation. And they looked to see if that had any impact on the risk factors of ethnicity, age, gender. And they found that it was a predictor in and of itself, deprivation, but it didn't explain for everything. Ethnicity, the risk factor from that persisted despite accounting for deprivation, which is of interest. And the deprivation is linked to a geographical area. They say it's down to about 650 households, each level on that scale. So 
They tried to account for deprivation uh, geographically, but they didn't specifically comment on geographical areas. That is quite an important potential confounder, I think, because you see from the, the graphs from uh, that are released by the government that there's a very unequal distribution of COVID across the country. So actually, if you get different demographics in those different areas, the predictive factor might be whether there's a lot of COVID in your geographical area. Therefore, a, demo, a particular demographic characteristic might appear to be a predictor, but it's just because there's a high prevalence of people from that demographic in that particular area. Very true. And also the deprivation um, score relies on an accurate postcode. So if a student is registered as living at home, or if you just haven't updated your postcode with your GP practice, then that deprivation index will be off. Before we move on, the, the last issue this is really captured the imagination of the media is the issue around um, black and minority ethnic populations with this one because it does seem to be a risk factor and certainly that's been a a big issue for us to think about whether actually this is a very important risk factor why it might be a risk factor it seems that we possibly can't compare those hazard ratios that you presented across different characteristics here but what we can see from this is that being from a, a bane group actually is a risk factor but what are the implications and how does it help our understanding they have tried to account for deprivation And it was hypothesized that the increased risk seen in ethnic minorities was related to inequality. So you could say in this analysis, to a degree, they've tried to account for that. However, I'm not sure that this deprivation index can fully account for the inequality in society. And probably there are some unmeasured factors here around inequality, which may well be contributing to that. The other contributing factor, which is being very quickly investigated now is whether or not there's a genetic element. There's, there are some things against that. For instance, the rates of disease in Africa at the moment, putting to side the problems with surveillance, we're not seeing high rates of uh, COVID-19 there. It could be overlapping things. There. It could be to do with climate. Could, you can argue, like I said, surveillance. But some African countries have really good disease surveillance because they deal with infectious disease outbreaks all the time. There may be lots of overlapping things there, and it's really hard to pick out. But I think what holds true is regardless of the etiology, regardless of the why, it appears that uh, patients who are of black or Asian ethnicity have an increased risk. But I think if this paper, to me, convincingly proves that that effect is real. We've been joined by uh, Ellie Hollisall as well, who uh, you remember joined us last week. So um, our expert in public health. So I don't have much to add to Charlie's excellent summary, uh, except a couple of thoughts, really. One was around the the impact of these big data projects and what they mean in terms of risk communication. Risk factors has already been a lot of discussion of these risk factors in social media and so on. And, and thinking about how we communicate that with people, because a lot of risk factors are, are unmodifiable. You can't do anything about them at the time. And so there's a risk of stigmatizing groups or of making people feel that they are inherently responsible for their own um, health in a way which I don't think is helpful to the narrative at the moment. So we all need to be careful about our language around such things. And I think related to that is what you were highlighting in the discussion around the interaction potentially between deprivation and race or ethnicity. And again, this runs the risk of being very complicated. We know that it's common in studies where um, deprivation and or ethnicity are controlled for, that they seem to explain some of the picture, but not all of it. And we, um, it's some, probably the case that it's some kind of synergistic variable or there's an element of it that we're not picking up. And again, it's far, far more complicated than just what you would see within COVID research. But it's really important that we bear in mind that what these are doing are flagging up indicators, flagging up things that we need to be aware of in situations where we need to be being particularly careful. When you look at that, some of those are quite easy to explain in terms of associated pathologies. So like hematological malignancy or cancer or diabetes, perhaps. But some of them aren't. So things like male sex and um, ethnicity aren't. So I was wondering what Pam and Paul felt about that from a virology perspective. Have you got a feel for why that might be? Certainly male gender. There's definitely a a bias towards viral infections. Measles, for example, there's a higher incidence in males. Paul, can you remember what the mechanism behind it is? It's I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what it is, but but the, that's a definite phenomenon um, in terms of viral infections that, that males are more. Fantastic. A great discussion on a, on a great paper. And we should move on, with which Anissa is going to take us through. Builds on our epidemiology theme this week. Um, another big data approach, but a very different one and very complementary. King's College London have set up an 
app that you use on your smartphone to uh, enter your symptoms if you have possible COVID. And they've an analysed 2.6 million cases from the UK and the US. And Denise is going to take us through this one. Yeah, so the, the name of the paper, Real-Time Tracking of Self-Reported Symptoms to Predict Potential COVID-19, doesn't necessarily represent all of the data they've actually collected. There's, if you actually look at the tables which are available, there's a lot of data they've actually collected by this app, but they focus specifically on the, 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 the symptoms. Um, it's a pre-publication in Nature Medicine. Essentially, the team have developed a mathematical model, which has been informed by this data from um, the, the symptom tracker, to predict the likelihood of having the virus based on the symptoms that you have. It was launched um, in the last week of March in the UK and then in the USA um, within a couple of days. It was based on self-reporting daily on the presence or absence of symptoms. And the idea is to sort of track the onset and progression of symptoms so you can identify those who are considered most at risk of developing COVID-19 and then think about a, a bit about how it's then spread Now, the data, um, as Rick said, looks at um, around 2.6 million app users from both the UK and the USA. And when you look at the data overall, approximately a third reported symptoms known to be associated with COVID-19. 2% of these were tested and received a result. And again, this is self-reported. And just over a third of these were tested as positive. So you can see the numbers become a little bit smaller as you go through, but still a substantial number of app users. Now, one of the key findings which has come to attention, particularly in the media and has now um, influenced the case definitions and case finding, um, is the loss of taste and smell being a potential early warning sign. And they, they recommended it should be included in routine screening. So, you know, tick for them. They've, they've kind of produced it. It's having its influence already. What they did with the reported symptoms, so just to go a little bit further into it, is the those who um, had positive lab results, they then worked out which of the symptoms were most commonly associated with a positive result and used this to create a predictive model as to who with certain symptoms is likely to test positive. And the model that they came out with um, uses age, BMI, um, anosmia or loss of taste, cough, fatigue, and then they say skipping meals, but essentially loss of appetite which predicts the likelihood of infection with those symptoms close to 80%. Sensitivity was around 0.65 um, and the specificity was around 0.8, was slightly lower in the UK group and slightly higher in the, um, the US group. There was a higher positive predictive value in the UK and a higher negative predictive value in the US. So we can think about the reasons that that might be. Um, we won't know the reasons that we think about them. They, they found that the anosmia the, or the loss of taste was the strongest predictor and increased the sensitivity of the model. However, it did reduce its specificity. They did have a little look at the media influence on this because they, they split, split the results up by time. Um, and what they found was in the US, it didn't make any difference. The fact that the media had been talking about loss of taste and smell. But in the UK, it did seem to. Um, and as time went on, um, this was becoming more and more of a, of a reported symptom. So that may have had an effect in the UK population but not so much in the US population again what that says about the different populations interesting but, but can't be sure and they then applied the model to further 800,000 or so app users uh, with symptoms who had not been tested and the prediction suggested that around 17% were likely to have COVID-19. Now there were issues and there are always issues with studies like this and the first thing is it's, it's a self-selecting group that agreed to join in with this any this sort of study. We do have a mean age, a median age might have been a little bit better but imagining you've got to have a phone, you've got to have an app, you've got to download it, you've got to use it, that's going to separate out a certain selection of the population who are not going to engage with this in the first place. There was a really high percentage of female users and so depending on the, the categories you look at we're talking 70 to 80 percent and that's quite important when we interpret the, the generalizability of the results. It's self-reported symptoms and there are issues with that. I mean, from experience, the detecting anosmia for me was an interesting process. My husband was diagnosed first. So I spent the, the following week wondering whether I could taste or smell things. And was it going? Was it not going? Could I taste this? Could I smell that? And then the only day I knew it definitely gone was when I couldn't smell my uh, child's nappy. You do wonder about the, the you know when did it start it's quite hard to be sure and as it wore off again from an anecdotal experience it wasn't just that it suddenly came back so I think things like that have to be taken into consideration in terms of timing and obviously lab testing is only going to be carried out on a select number of individuals and they're likely to be the more severe group so it does make generalization a little bit tricky and the authors as I said do suggest that results might be able to help identify those infected at the earliest demonstration of the symptoms but in particular they, they want this 
anosmia and, 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 and loss of taste to be included as a sort of diagnostic uh, factor. And, and as I said, it does seem to have, uh, have taken off fairly well. It's on the news. Yeah, it certainly has. And the anosmia is the key headline on that. As we get through to the coming winter and we mix it in with all of the other seasonal colds and influenza that might come, that it might lose its predictive value. And if people get a blocked nose, they can't smell the same, you think they're then going to worry it's COVID and will start to, it'll start to lose its predictive value. Well, I think that's the difficult thing about it. And again, it's a reported symptom and you can only go off description from people. From personal experience, it was very different. It was a very different quality of loss of smell with COVID-19 than it has been of any other cold I've ever had. It was very different. It was much more absolute. But how do you pull those two things apart? And as you say, once you get a blocked nose, you you can't taste things as well. I I think it will become problematic um, in terms of being a predictive factor, actually being specific for for COVID-19. Possibly the the mechanisms might be different from sort of the blocked nose and and things that you get with a a cold or flu. Um, I think coronaviruses in general have have been shown to cause anosmia before and and the mechanism is supposed to be that it affects the olfactory nerve and deadens the nerve for a while. So, so that you actually do get a loss of sensa- sensation rather than just it being blocked. Maybe maybe there's a bit of research that needs to be done that we need to have certain compounds that you're asked to smell with certain conditions and uh, that we can use a litmus test. I wouldn't recommend necessarily using baby's nappies as a, as a test for that, but there are other things we could use. So I guess when you take the patient's history, that's maybe something we could ask about because the, the anosmia that comes with a blocked nose would be apparent if you go into the detail of it, that the patient's got a blocked nose. Presumably, when you couldn't smell your baby's nappy, Anissa, actually <laughs> came without having a blocked nose and was therefore particularly unusual. No, definitely. It was, it was highly unusual and very impractical. I think there's someone somewhere with a functional MRI scanner waiting for the patient with coronavirus and a set of smelling salts somewhere. That <laughs> might uh, actually answer the question. So we did um, cover in one of the updates a little bit earlier in the month, a paper by uh, Beltran and Corbellini et al. that was a case control study looking at smell and taste disorders in coronavirus versus other viruses, uh, other respiratory viruses. And they found an increased rate of smell and taste disturbances, 39.2% versus 12.5% in uh, novel coronavirus gave an odd ratio of 4.5 and was found to be statistically significant. Ali, I, I was fascinated by the method of this paper using an app and um, self-reported symptoms. What, what do you make of this, uh, this study? I think it's really interesting and I, I think app-based research is going to be a, a feature of COVID-19 generally, isn't it? Uh, interestingly, I had a very similar experience to Anissa and, and therefore didn't download this app because I already knew I had tested positive for covid and so I, didn't, I thought I would be sort of skewing the data somehow. But I, I think it's been really interesting to see how people have engaged with this huge numbers of, of people downloading it and, and taking part. And, and I suspect we'll see the same when the contact tracing app gets used more widely, that, that it'll be that same thing. The caution that needs to be applied whenever you think about this is that there's a particular section of the population who are using apps, who are willing to download these things. There's an assumption that because Statistically speaking, everyone in the country owns a smartphone. That means everyone in the country owns an iPhone or a smartphone. It's not true. I have three. Therefore, there are other people who have none. And so, you know, we are actually seeing, we see a gradient in access in addition to the ones that we are perhaps conscious of. They are very useful. They reach large numbers of people who maybe wouldn't have been engaged with any form of, of research or citizen science, as we might think of this. But uh, it's definitely not covering everybody. Particularly when we think about the previous paper showing that social deprivation is associated with poor outcomes and there may be more difficulty with people in lower socioeconomic circumstances to get access to the technology. And similar language problems and accessibility and translation, all of those are issues which need to be addressed through these um, related functions. Intrigued yesterday when Jonathan Van Tan said adding this symptom into the case definition made very small difference to the case identification. And yet here we've got big difference between those who have had COVID-19, those who have not, reporting loss of sense of taste and smell. So it appears from this paper to, to have made quite a large difference. The other evidence around anosmia comes from the first few hundred symptoms work that's been done, where somewhere in the region of 29% of people reported some form of anosmia or loss of appetite. I think the two are very overlapping. But but for those to happen in isolation from any other symptoms, I suspect is rarer. 
And I think that's where where that comes from. The other thing, purely anecdotally, um, being married to a GP, we were talking about this yesterday, and they were discussing having added this in as a new symptom. And the consensus in the coffee room yesterday was all of them have been using anosmia as as part of their heuristics anyway for quite some time. So it might be shifting things in the official numbers, but how much clinical practice is it actually going to change? Perhaps not as much. Where we think it'll be useful from a public health point of view is ensuring that healthcare workers get tested and screened at an appropriate time, making sure that they are fast-tracked for testing. It's a good point. In fact, we've had it in our departmental protocol preceding this publication. We were maybe early adopters on that one. And we should move on to our next. So now we've got a really relevant paper. We've, I, I really like the fact that we cover papers that aren't just emergency medicine because it started off for an emergency medicine group here and we've ended up with a, a really uh, broad coverage of the literature. And here we've got a nice virology paper for Pam and Paul to get the teeth into, but that you'll see is really relevant to what we do every day on the on the shop floor in the, in the emergency department. We knew before this that inhalation of virus-laden droplets, close contact with people, not necessarily patients, but people that you meet in the street. You can also pick the virus up from contaminated surfaces where you, you touch touch your fingers on, on a surface and then touch your nose or your mouth and transmit the virus. And we've all seen these high-speed photographs of people sneezing and coughing and this sort of large droplet spread that sprays out of the mouth and nose when you, when you get that. But beyond that, at the sub-microscopic level, you have aerosolization of these fluids as well. So in a sneeze, the aerosol travels further. And because it's light, it stays suspended in the air for longer, giving us greater opportunity to breathe it in. So in this study, they actually looked by air sampling in two different hospitals in Wuhan. One was a normal, modern tertiary referral center where the most severely affected cases were nursed. And the other was the equivalent of one of our Nightingale hospitals, built in a very short space of time in one of the indoor stadia in Wuhan. Uh, and of course, there's slightly different patient type in them, in that the severely affected cases were mainly in intensive care, whereas in the field hospital, they would have been cases who are not so severely ill that they had to go into intensive care, but may, may have been receiving oxygen treatment. So they looked in various areas of this, and they did it by sampling at a height of about 1.5 metres above the floor, round about the, where your nose would be. And they took a set amount of air through filters and trapped the virus on gelatine filters. They then took those gelatin filters and actually quantitated the amount of virus that had been trapped. And in that way, we were able to relate the number of virus particles to the volume of air that had been passed through the filter. And they used very accurate digital PCR, which is our most accurate way of quantitating virus particles. They didn't actually look at virus infectivity. So really, you're just looking at where's the virus it's not actually making judgments about whether the virus within the aerosol is actually viable. They looked at various areas within these two hospitals. In the modern hospital, they found very low or no levels of virus in the atmosphere. They explained that in terms of in negative pressure isolation rooms, the virus was being removed efficiently. In intensive care, in the cardiac care units, there's high airflow. And so again, the virus is being removed efficiently. But they also found the same in the, in the field hospital. There, the natural ventilation from the very high roof within the facility was thought to encourage removal of the virus from the atmosphere. They looked in various places within the two hospitals, and they did find high levels of virus in the intensive care unit, not in the atmosphere, but settled on surfaces. And they had air sampling in corners of the room because obviously the patients and the equipment around the patients restricts what you can do within an intensive care unit but they did find it settled upon the floor that has implications for cleaning in these areas efficient cleanings are clearly important but obviously very difficult in a modern itu where you have so much equipment around the patients second place where they found high concentration was where you take your ppe off so you see a patient 
And then when you're being taught how to use PPE, one of the things that's emphasized is how you take the PPE off. And this is an elegant example, illustration of why you need to be careful when you're actually taking the PPE off. Because he actually looked at the size of the aerosols that were generated in those areas. And it seems there were fairly large size globules of aerosols, which were landing on the surface of the PPE, which when you took them off, were re-aerosolized into smaller fragments and therefore more easily distributed. So it shows that those lessons that we learn when we were taught the order in which we should take the PPE off are very, very important. It's a practical illustration of that. They even suggested that maybe we should be actually sanitizing the PPE before we take it off which seemed a pretty difficult thing to do. The other thing that I hadn't really thought about before was the floor. The droplets land on the floor, you foot traffic in the floor, re-aerosolizes those and produces the smaller aerosols back into the atmosphere. So clearly the area in which you take your PPE off is potentially a high-risk area. The other areas that you perhaps didn't think about were your office, the workstation, and also the team room, all of them had aerosolized virus present in the atmosphere. They also looked outside the, the actual medical areas, just as when you're going through a hospital and sampled in, in areas within the hospitals and found that wherever there was a pinch point where you're coming close to other people, particularly people from outside, there was again aerosolized virus present in the, in the atmosphere. So even when you're outside the, the unit where the patients are, you can pick up the virus if there is foot traffic and, and pinch points throughout the hospital areas. Limitations of it are fairly small sample numbers. You're restricted in where you can sample from in these uh, sort of cases because you really don't want to get in the way of care of the patient to try and sample what's actually happening. And of course, the restrictions, particularly in intensive care units, about where you can place the equipment in relation to the equipment that's already there. The other thing is that it didn't measure infectious virus. So we're making an assumption that by detecting viral RNA, we can actually, we are actually mimicking infectious virus and risk of infection. Main lesson to be learned is watch out for toilets. In the field hospital, they had one meter cubicles which had been brought in as emergency toilet areas, they were not ventilated. And in there, there was quite substantial amounts of virus present in the air. And they thought that that could have come from infected patients' breath, but also maybe may have been generated in, in urination and, of course, in defecation as the virus is released and aerosolized as a result of those two activities. PPE removal, got to be careful about. Cleaning was emphasised. The, the settling of the virus on surfaces was quite significant. And in terms of the two types of hospitals, the, the tertiary referral centre versus the stadium type hospital, which is equivalent to our Nightingale hospitals, the Nightingale hospitals really were not much worse than the, the tertiary referral centre in terms of safety and aerosolization of viruses. So I liked it from a virus point of view because of the technology. You like it from the, the reassurance it should give you about your working environment. Some really important things to be aware of about aerosolization, where you take your PPE off and in staff areas. But then they emphasize the importance, as you did, of, of cleaning. When we doff, for example, we routinely take gloves off and then you use alcohol gel for your hands and then you take your gown off. Should we be doing more? Should we be doing, should we be doing something to the air? Is there some spray we should be using? In laboratories with high-risk pathogens, we have an arrangement where we have an anti-room and we're taught to take our gloves off and add our, our equipment in it. And in fact, when I've been to infectious diseases where they're dealing with potential category four patients, they don't tell you that. They have double gloves and they take one pair of gloves off to doff the PPE and then they take the final pair of gloves off. So there are lessons from the infection control team. If you, you remember when you were taught by infection control how to, how to take your PPE off, if you can't remember them now, it's a good time for a refresher, I think, because the lessons are, are there in this paper that we've really got to be thinking that the surface of the PPE that we're, we're using could be contaminated. Of course, typically in the UK, we're using non-permeable aprons in front of the PPE, so that actually helps. And I'm not certain that that was available in, in Wuhan. And it may be that they did not have the impermeable apron that we do. 
Can I just add one thing? I thought the toilet thing was very interesting. And I think in an earlier webinar that, that we had, we showed or, or we saw that uh, there was lots of viral RNA in, in feces, but not necessarily live virus. And, you know, that might account for some of that. But, you know, perhaps one thing to sort of emphasise as well is that when you flush a toilet, you know, after you've um, been to the toilet, it creates a huge aerosol. And, and one of the most effective things you can do is to put the lid down uh, before you flush, because then that contains it in the in the toilet. Whereas, you know, many people don't and, and the aerosol goes everywhere when you flush. So. Not just this female obsession with putting the lid down after us gentlemen have been there then. I was going to say, I think the uh, point has finally been settled there, hasn't it? Lid down. The win for women across the world. Yeah. <laughs> as well as the implications for our staff, this has implications for how we might educate the general public, I suppose, because the same principles apply to our patients who are going home to self-isolate. And of course, this idea that if we start to use face masks for everyone, you have to think that the surface of the face mask may be contaminated and that you need to remove it properly and dispose of it properly. If you, if you are going to go down that route where you, everyone is supposed to wear a face mask. And now we're going to come to the climax for our special guest here, Liz Crow. You waited so patiently before we bring you in on your special topic. So thanks very much. We're going to change the focus in a way. No more quantitative research at the moment. Here we've got some focus on bereavement, loss and communication. So you've got a, a great paper by Selman et al. You're going to take us through this. Yeah, so this paper is really, it's more of a commentary. It's not even a literature review It's, I guess, a group of people from Bristol talking about what they think is important to consider around bereavement and grief during the COVID-19. I thought it was really interesting that they started with advanced care planning because I've done research in advanced care planning. I'm very proactive around it. However, in the middle of a pandemic, I'm not sure how much advanced care planning you can actually do when you've got volumes of people coming in through the emergency department. There should be so many learnings for COVID-19 for all of us. And hopefully one of those is that people really should be talking to their loved ones all the time about what their perceptions is about what gives life meaning um, to ensure when anyone has an accident of any age, we know what their values are. And as relatives, we're able to make decisions for them that are consistent with these values. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for advanced care planning in COVID. There is. But during a pandemic, I think it'd be very hard to try and get um, ACPs on everyone who's coming through the door. When they talked about communication here, they definitely spoke about, you know, the importance of being very clear communication and being proactive. Now, one of the things that we know has been very difficult during COVID-19 is when people are wearing PPE correctly, it can be extremely difficult to hear what people are saying. And that's staff to staff, let alone staff to patient, because of our restrictions, a lot of these families are also, you know, not present, so are speaking via phones. So I think it's a real time that the paper doesn't mention this, but it's a time for creativity with regards to our communication, staff to staff as well, staff to patient. It has to still be sensitive and it has to be proactive. Earlier we can give families information at any point in health is, is really critical. And we need to do that in a sensitive, compassionate, um, as well as just making sure that we're speaking in a language that people can understand. And I'm saying this over and over again. We have to remember as health practitioners that nasal cavity, abdomen, high flow, these are not common terms for everyone. And so we have to make sure all the time that people are actually understanding what we're saying, particularly when we're talking about end-of-life communication. Another big problem that they mention in the paper is just the whole depersonalisation through PPE. You know, again, one of the greatest gifts social media has given us during this pandemic is people putting great ideas out there that we can all learn from. And one of the things that I thought is fantastic is when you've got full PPE on, people can't see anything about you. They have no opportunity to make a connection or to relate to you. So I love this idea that people have been hanging photographs sticky taping photographs of their faces to their gowns and for patients who are conscious to even put a little spiel like, hi, I'm Rick, I'm a research person, or, you know, whatever, like I've got kids, you know, as a way for people who particularly may be already hard of hearing or disabled or are just frail or terrified of saying, you know, there's a human being under here that's not that much different to you. PPE can be terrifying at the best of times. I remember when my brother first had, you know, he's a well 
35-year-old healthy male when he um, got lymphoma. You know, the first time they came towards him from PPE, nearly keeled over because he was just like, what, why is this person dressed like that? So it's all very confronting. One of the things I thought the paper missed um, doing was about talking really creatively about how we can communicate with families during COVID-19. And the no visitor thing, they touch on on the kind of moral distress and injury to staff about this. But I actually think that in some ways this will be, have a bigger impact on healthcare professionals than the deaths alone. And that's just people not being able to visit, people not being able to provide comfort, not being able to say, hey, this is my dad or this is my loved wife or would you mind playing classical music or, you know, we know sometimes nothing about patients. For people who've been completely inundated with patients, the opportunity to do this stuff hasn't been there. So please don't feel guilty about that. But perhaps as people come up with a little bit of room to breathe now and to, and to reflect on our practice, if we can have someone who can ring relatives every single day and just give them a brief update, certainly I'm going to give a bit of a plug. We did a podcast on the CODA versus COVID, um, talking with Angela Tons about the ways that you can do that, you know, whether it's Zoom or on Facebook Messenger, but being able to show relatives in real time, you know, what's happening to their loved one in the bed and for that person to be able to communicate back for three minutes of our time means everything in the world, particularly if that person goes on to die. When people are dying, we really still encourage memories, memory making and mementos, which again, I think it's great that they've discussed this in the paper, but the practicalities of there are a bit missing and that might have been a word count issue. But I think about being able to say to people, did they have a favourite song? We'll play it when we know this person is dying. Did they have a favourite radio station? Is there a paragraph from a book that you would like us to read? Or better still, is there a way of virtually bringing the family into the room that they can read it themselves or they can sing if that's what they want to do or share stories? We've encouraged people to send things in when they're having their 10 to 14 days ventilated in ICU where there's stories and pictures that we can hang on the wall that don't bring any risk of infection to either the staff or the families, you know, bringing them, just so that there's something of comfort when, when people do recover. So I think there's a whole range of things that they've covered well in this paper. It acts as a nice framework for people who might be really stuck about what we can do for patients with COVID-19. Those virtual means of communication list uh, sound really important. I find it to operationalize that in the emergency department where there's no infrastructure because we're not used to it you mentioned about using facetime and is that something you use in practice and how do you get around the concerns about you know data protection and privacy i I don't think we can completely you know get around that but again i don't know how many people are trying to tap in to watch you know someone ventilated on a on a bed and i think the benefits versus risk you know that we can talk about risk the risk for COVID for staff around moral injury, the risk for complicated grief for families, I think it far outweighs us trying to do things. And it's tricky because if you've ever tried to use your phone with a plastic glove on, it's difficult. One of the ways that they've been doing that in the ICU in the hospital I'm about to go in is that they purchased four iPads prior to the pandemic specifically for this, but it can be done with phones and you get someone to set it all up outside the room double bag it, get it in so that it's already ready to go. So there's some time when the family is just seeing all walls and things like that. It lessens the risk from staff member to staff member and you literally hold it up and the people converse. Now, if the patient is ventilated, what we recommend doing is if you can find a staff member, and again, you know, in the peak of pandemics, sometimes this simply isn't an option. As we are moving to different phases, to have one person in your ED or in your ICU or in your ward who's designated to make contact um, with family members, and it doesn't need to be a medical person, it can be a nurse, it can be an allied health person, with a brief summary of like, okay, so today we're turning down the ventilation settings, we're hoping to wake your loved one up or things are deteriorating, is there anything that would be important? And to be able to Zoom FaceTime the families who can't get into the hospital so that they can see, hey, there are people who are genuinely 
interested in our loved one. And even though we can't be there, they're going to convey our messages. And that's almost as important for the staff as it is actually for the families and the patient because being able to know we've given someone, and I'm doing inverted commas, a good death is so important to us. And, you know, when you've got these huge volumes and you've had to cut family members off, it feels pretty awful. So to be able to communicate a nurse or a doctor held your loved one's hand when they died. We heard that they loved Bing Cosby and we played that loud and proud on the radio and we made sure that your loved one was comfortable and felt no pain and died very peacefully can really make the world of difference to family members who were not able to be there at the time. One way in which it becomes very relevant to us in the emergency department is for patients who die in the department or for patients who come in in cardiac arrest and we can't resuscitate them because our routine experience uh, is that you know, we, we spend time with those relatives afterwards, mm-hmm. build up a bit of a rapport so they could see the human face of the person caring for their relative. But you can't do that now in the pandemic. It's, re- it's really challenging. I noticed that, in the, I think it was in a separate paper that uh, you sent to us, they talked about sending condolence notes to the relative, uh, which is not, not something I've ever thought of doing. And you know what, it takes nothing. And look, some people are like, oh, we can't, we don't have cards. You know, we don't have condolences cards. To get a piece of paper from out of the photocopier and say, hi, my name is Richard Body. Uh, I didn't get to meet you, but I met your dad. And I just wanted you to know that we really cared about them and we're very sorry for that outcome. And at some point in the future, when this crazy sends, if you ever want to come back and ask what happens, you know, there'll be someone... That could be, well, don't make that promise, first of all, if you can't do it, if 40,000 people are going to show up. But I think it makes the world of difference to say someone cared, someone recognised that this was a human being who was loved and had a backstory and loved the cricket and enjoyed a port on a Saturday night. You know, those sorts of things are important. And, again, it doesn't have to be the doctor or nurse to do that. If you have other people that you can use as a resource, Um, that had the skills and can cope with that, to ring to say, I'm terribly sorry, your loved one has died. And the the people who are around the bed, Richard, Pam, Ellie and Paul, and all of us just wanted to say how sorry we were and that people cared and we took a moment to think of you and your family. But that's a three-minute phone conversation that could change the course of people's bereavement. And Unless you've literally got thousands of people coming through the door every day, I think most of us could find three minutes close to death to say that to a family member. Well, that's a really lovely message, Liz, and really important. Uh, just from Liz, one of the things that comes out of here and, and a top topic which is running at the moment is the potential harms towards health workers themselves, future moral injury and PTSD has been proposed as all at risk. What do you think we can do to mitigate that from happening now, so prevention rather than cure? I think the first thing is it's just, breaks my heart that whenever we talk about staff wellbeing, we talk about deficit, burnout, PTSD, moral distress. What about meaning making? What about compassion, satisfaction? What about post-traumatic growth? Look, this is going to impact us, whoever we are, healthcare professional or not, because our world has changed. And for some people overseas, and I recognise this has not been the case in Australia, what has happened, the volume of people that they've had to see suffer is enormous. So I think one of the things we need to do is to keep owning our emotions and our experience. Finish a 17-hour shift where you've intubated 20 people or you've done CPR four times and three people died and to say to your other staff members, oh, I'm shattered. This has broken my heart. I've never seen anything like this. And I would really encourage the senior members of staff to share that, those ethical dilemmas, to share that moral distress, to share that grief, to share a tear. But also to share, you know, like what went well and, my God, that was carnage, but I am proud to have done it with you guys, to to build those commonalities. Um, Because, of course, this is going to go on. We have to find a way of creating space and creating breaks. And I think, you know, one of the things is then don't say to staff, go home and do podcasts and listen to webinars all night. Have some time out, watch, you know, parks and recreation, laugh, enjoy your kids make sourdough like the rest of the world apparently is if you're not a healthcare professional. And to really recognise, you know, I actually think that in some ways burnout will be at its lowest ever because people are doing what they love and why they came to healthcare. 
they are inundated, but they're still showing up because bureaucracy is temporarily almost out of the way and people are doing about what it is that they came to do. They're using their skills to the very best of their ability. And that blows me away that people are working, you know, particularly a couple of months ago, 17-hour shifts and coming home and sharing their knowledge on social media. You know, that has the potential to, to assist thousands and that they are the sorts of things that we also need to savour and talk about. Was there any mention of a memorial service for the relatives when the opportunity arises in the future? I love the idea of that. I think, you know, hospitals could say we couldn't do anything on a one-on-one basis, but when we can eventually get together as a group again or we're going to do this online, in the future we're going to say mark the date on February the 17th, 2021, that if you had someone who died at the Manchester Hospital, we're all going to light a candle and we're going to applaud you for doing the right thing and, and for contributing. Uh, we have Anzac Day every day in Australia to celebrate our fallen soldiers and this year for the first time ever we couldn't do it. And our Prime Minister encouraged everyone to stand on their driveway with a candle. Hundreds of thousands of Australians stood on their driveway with a candle. We can all do those sorts of things to mark. They're estimating a million people are grieving in the world already based on COVID-19. And we, once again, have so much more in common as a humanity than ever before, and we need to bond on that. Brilliant, positive message, Liz. Thanks so much for sharing it. Fantastic insights. Um, We'll finish up just by plugging the Arkham Top 5. And Simon, you want to say a few words about next week? Only to say, just to to remind people to share this as widely as you can. Currently, the the webinar and the the podcast and the blogs, they're going out to around about 5,000 people. So the impact of the the general club i think is pretty pretty broad but please do share it more widely please encourage people to come along and have a listen um to the podcast have a look at the blog and, and keep going we will have a special guest star next week i just don't know who it is yet and charlie the arkham top five still going yeah absolutely so every week uh, we're sending out the top five uh, papers which is distilled from one and a half thousand papers uh, that we're that the team are being really great and searching through every single week if you find a paper and you think it's really interesting please submit it on our google form so if you see an interesting paper send it in and hopefully we'll put it in our update particular thanks to our amazing panel who make this and teach me so much